Hello, we're going to read the Bible now. There is two readings today. The first one comes from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in. Proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The second reading comes from Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said that Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Arapagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Arapagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Arapagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So we are in our last week of a series we've been looking at for three weeks called Compelled. 
We're looking at the DNA of our church and the sort of culture that we are intentionally going to shape uh, as we never stop talking about Jesus, as we desire to be a Jesus-shaped community, and this week as we take Jesus into our communities. What does that look like? How do we do that? What's the goal? So John and I, um, his name isn't John, but I'll call him John for the purpose of this story, and it's a true story. We were in my kitchen after dinner, and we're doing the dishes, and we were talking about space and stars and planets. And John loves this stuff, and I find it very fascinating to um, continue down that path and lively discussion for quite some time. And then I said to him, see, we're both looking at the same evidence. We're just interpreting it differently. I look at everything out there and say, wow, isn't God creative, amazing, and wonderful? And then he's not a Christian, and the conversation continued a bit further along. And I don't know how we got to it, but I remember saying to him this, that uh, let's assume that if God is real, John, does it not mean that he could raise Jesus from the dead? I mean, if we're going to talk about a God-like being, let's describe God-like attributes to that being. Therefore, does it not make sense that God can then raise someone from the dead? And John looked at me and he said, well, yes, if you're going to talk about a God, then surely that God would have power over life and death. So it makes perfect sense for this God, who you say and believe in, to raise Jesus from the dead. And then I said, see... Christianity is a perfectly logical, tangible belief to hold on to. It's rational. It makes sense, does it not? And he smiled and looked at me and he said, really though, people don't rise from the dead. And with that, I knew the conversation had, had ended and we kept doing the dishes and moved on to other things. And what my friend showed me that night was really interesting. I realized that as I talk about Jesus to others, What they need is a frame of reference to be able to think about the claims of Jesus in a way that's tangible and relevant. I mean, my friend John and those like him, they don't just need to know a true fact. Jesus died for you. God loves you. He rose from the dead. Your sin is forgiven. They're they're true facts. They're objective facts. We have to help them become subjective facts. How those statements actually play a part in the bigger story that God invites us to live in and live out. Am I explaining that to him? Because often I don't think we clearly explain Christian truths to people's lives and show them why Jesus is actually the answer to their longings, their desires, their hopes, their dreams. He can finish their story. And so today, as we think about being a missional community, I want us to think about it in two parts. As you go and have your conversations with people in the week, and as we gather as the people of God, two parts. The first is that is the engine room. By engine room, I mean what we do as the gathered people of God to be missional. And then the parts, you and me, all different, all varied, kicking around, talking to different people in our life, in ways that only you can get into, in spaces only you can relate to, at work, at school, at university. So you're the parts, together we're the engine room. So how do we tell people about Jesus in both spheres? And what does that look like? Because they're slightly different, but they're both massively important for the gospel. So We're going to start with the engine room, and that is in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 to 6. So turn there if you've got your Bible, and some of the verses will be on the screen. Paul starts off, engine room thinking here, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. The idea of being devoted to prayer is is the command that Paul is getting across in these passages. It's the life of a Christian to pray. One commentator I read this week said that Paul is not focusing narrowly on one's prayer life, but defining your entire existence as having prayerful alertness. Your entire existence as prayerful alertness. 
And prayer, by the way, is, is in the plural form, if you were to crack open the Greek. Uh, meaning, it's not just you praying, but the community. We'd say in the Australian dialect, if we were to translate into Aussie in 2020, uh, devote you guys to prayer. You guys be devoted to prayer. You know, when you say use, it means collective, you as individual. Anyway, use guys is what Paul is getting across. Be devoted to prayer. So don't just think of the you as the individual. We're devoted to praying to our missional God for his mission as his collective group of people. Use guys. And so prayer and mission actually go together, as he says in verse 3. Pray for us. For the Colossians to be devoted to prayer, it means they're going to pray in a certain way namely for Paul and his team, that God would open a door for our message. Open door is a metaphor for evangelism, not an open door for Paul's prison cell where he's writing from at this moment. And he asks them to pray that God would initiate more avenues of gospel proclamation. God leads us to all the places he would have you and me go, to tell others about Jesus. Where you are right now, at work and at school and at home, all those avenues is your, in one sense, unique avenue that I can't get into or have access to because I'm not you, but you do, and you can proclaim, speak, declare the gospel of Jesus in that way to those people. And Paul wants God to open doors so that he may do exactly that. And so the engine room, the community of God's people, is full of prayer for mission praying that God would open the doors for more chances to proclaim that Jesus to everyone around us. But not only that, the engine room is a place for clarity, praying for clarity and to be prepared. In verse 4 he says, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Clarity has this idea of shining a light, revealing something in the dark so you can see. And Paul's prayer and his request, sorry, for prayer, is that God would reveal how he can make the gospel a light of revelation to those he speaks to. Paul wants them to pray as a group that he would know how to clearly proclaim Jesus. And then in verse 5 and 6, he urges them to be wise and gracious and ready to declare Jesus to others. Not everyone's like a Paul. He's an apostle. He's this missionary guy. He's going around all of Asia and, and proclaiming Jesus. And you and me are, are not always alike. We're not going to be like Paul, nor should we expect to be like Paul either. But all of us have been given and, and are designed, I should say, for evangelism of some sort. And what we all have in common is that we will be wise in the world, gracious in our speech, and ready to answer about our faith. And the engine room is a place to pray for this. And, and I think... I realize that this week that I often pray, open a door so I can talk about Jesus. But I don't often pray, to my shame, God, give me clarity when that happens. Give me a door to talk about Jesus to whoever it is, my mum and dad or the people at the coffee shop. But I don't say, God, also help me say the right thing in the right way so I can connect them to Jesus. Often I, and, and, and actually this week, um, I failed at this. And I'll tell you the story. Um, she had a positive story at the start with my friend John and also here's one where I did not uh, actually take the opportunity. Uh, I had a coffee with someone who doesn't know Jesus and they said something I did not expect them to say. And this is someone who does not show emotions. There's no one here. Um, they don't show emotions. They don't talk about how they feel. And they said, just out the blue, I can see why people get depressed when they don't have a job anymore. 
And so this man is losing his job. He's made redundant. Six weeks' time, um, he's worked there for 45 years. And he said to me, I can see why people get depressed. And I, I thought, whoa! Like, it, it just threw me off that he would say that. And I, I, at, at the time, I thought, what an opportunity. In my head, this is, I thought, I can tell him about Jesus now. But to my shame, I didn't. I, I, I fumbled my way through something like, yes, it is, it is hard and I can agree with you and I guess that's how you're feeling, isn't it? And we kind of talked for a bit and then he changed the conversation pretty quick after that, almost like he was fishing and pulled the, the line away. But I never said, Jesus gives you a real and better purpose to wake up to and that he won't make you redundant and that actually he was forsaken so you could be accepted and loved and have that confidence in life. Did you know that Jesus? Let me tell you about him. I didn't say that. To my shame. And so Paul's encouragement is at a time, for, for me and for you I'm sure, is at times like that and before that even we're praying that I will be prepared, that we will be prepared, wise and ready. But some of you here agree with me, but you're thinking, I don't have that problem. Because you're always ready to talk about Jesus. Some of you are just, are just you know, naturally good at, at talking. But Paul doesn't let you off the hook either, so don't think this has nothing to say to you. He talks about being salt, gracious. You want to actually make sure you talk about the gospel being attractive, not just true. To have words seasoned with salt is to take care and choose in the right words, not just true words. You want to be gracious in how you speak, not just truthful and always having the last word in the conversation to win as well. And so Paul's emphasis here is on the conversations that you and me are going to have because our conversations are the nuts and bolts of the gospel. Our words are the vehicle for, for proclaiming God's word, as Paul said in 4.3. And so then as the gathered people of God, I don't think it would be too much of a stretch to say that the most important evangelistic tool we have as the community of God's people is prayer. Actually praying for mission for ourselves, that we'd be clear, we'd be wise, we'll be gracious. We take opportunities that God would open doors. Of all that we do, prayer should be the most important duty. And if we're serious about being word people, which we are, then that means we have to be a praying people too. The engine room, think of it this way, hums along on prayer. Turn on your engine, you hear the sound of it's working. If you turn on the church at Trinity Church Golden Grove engine when you're here, are you hearing this hum of prayer coming out from here? So then, what about the parts? As people, as, as the DNA of our church, we're going to be a praying people and we'll, we'll make time to pray throughout this year as well, specifically uh, for mission, for ourselves, for our community. So look out for that. But we're going to be a praying people. What does it mean as the engine room disbands and goes into their week? As we're the scattered individuals, scattered people of God, kicking around. Well, prayer still matters, so don't think I'm saying it does not. But what does it look like to take Jesus in your community? And I think Acts 17 gives us a really good case study of what that looks like, as Paul embodied Colossians 4. So we're going to look at the parts now. So Paul's in Athens, 70 or so AD. Athens was not nearly as prominent as it once was in Paul's day, but it was still the cultural hub uh, of the Roman Empire. There was a glory and a lust and a lure about Athens that attracted people. One ancient writer said it was easier to find a god in man than it was in Athens. Another said it had more images of idols than all of Greece put together. It was a hot pot of thinking, 
of Stoic philosophers, of Epicureans, of discussion. It says in there quite almost hilariously that um, they spent nothing but debating about the latest trends and what was new. But far from being impressed by this, Paul himself, he, he was there waiting. He didn't plan to be there necessarily, waiting for his friends. And it says his spirit was provoked within him. And it has this idea of, of a sharp end of a knife. That's how he kind of felt. That's what that word comes from. And so Paul was cut deep. He was filled with awe that led to sadness when he saw all that the glory of the city was just nothing but idols. Paul evaluated the culture of Athens through God's eyes. And then in 1717, we see what Paul did about this shock at the Athenian culture. It says so. So he looked around and he decided to get Timothy and whinge in the corner about how bad things were. And he walked away and thought, God riddance to them, you're going to hell in a handbasket. Not quite. He didn't blog about it and whinge either. He didn't um, isolate himself into the church. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. So Paul's reasoning, and then suddenly some people come up and say, hey, what are you talking about? Let's have a, a discussion, and there's a debate going on, and some of them ask, you're a babbler? What are you trying to say? Others said, mm, you're, you're advocating foreign gods. Sounds fancy. And they said all that because Paul was preaching Jesus, the good news of Jesus, and the resurrection. Which means he was in their spaces. He was, he was able to have an open dialogue with those around him in the marketplace. And it sounded so strange. He seemed out of his mind. And today, when we talk about Christian truths to people, it's what we think is reasonable. You have to realize it's often just sheer madness and, and craziness to people around you, like my friend John. Oh, yes, I can believe in this, this, this objective reality that if a God could do this and that, then that makes sense. But to subjectively believe that, gee, you're nuts, Luke, really, really. You're crazy. However, um, the Athenians were curious, so they brought him to the Areopagus, 19 to 21. It's like heading to Rundle Mall and giving a TED Talk. That's kind of the, the space that he was going into. Down North Terrace, all the universities, all the art centres there. You've got the um, everything. And Paul kind of gets dragged in here, big stage, and they want to know what, what he's talking about. And he's a herald of this Jesus. And back in the day when, when a herald came to Athens and talked about a new god, they want to bring that god and that idea into the pantheon of other gods. So let's pick up this Jesus, put him on the, on, on the side with other, other gods and kind of will incorporate him into our worship. And so you had to go before the council, which was at this place, and they would approve or, or say, no, thank you, we're not going to have this particular God. And so Paul stands up and he opens his mouth and he speaks. But notice how he does it. He uses an unknown God as the springboard to talk about the one true God. It's almost as if he says, guys, you're missing the point. You're missing the one who you need to be worshipping and praising. He's there. He's just unknown to you. So I'm going to tell you what this unknown God is. And so in our culture as well, is not the one true God unknown. So how can we use culture to make God known to others? And he goes on. He just slowly unpacks all these false narratives, false stories they're believing. And for example, in uh, verse 25, he said, nor is he, talking about God, Yahweh God, Jesus God, nor is he served by human hands. You see, humanity, this would have been a shock to the Athenian, is not created to serve God, to benefit God, to bless God, to make God happy. 
God hasn't created us because he's lonely or bored or has a power complex or desperate for love. God made you and me and all of humanity to share his eternal, full love, community, joy in himself. That's what he's doing before creation in the Trinity. That's what he's going to do long into eternity. That's the God that made us as an expression of his already full love to enter into that, to enjoy him. And then to prove his point in 1728, Paul quotes two sources that aren't in the Bible. He quotes two secular writers. We don't know where the first one comes from. The second one is from a guy called Artis of Sicilia. He's a philosopher. He's a poet. And it's not heretical to have a quote from a philosopher in the Bible. It's very rhetorical in Paul's speech. He grabs onto a cultural connection to show their own ideas lead them to naturally believe in God. And he points out how personal his God is compared to their stone-cold idols, compared to the idol on the rock or the naturalistic mindset that we have today. God is personal, relatable. And then he ends on two really important truths. He said, God actually commands you all to repent because, you see, natural revelation isn't enough. There, there needs to be repentance from making creation into an idol. Creation tells us there's a God. The problem is we make creation into a God from a stone statue to the silicone in our iPhones. And then secondly, repentance is necessary because of judgment. And what I think is important is Paul is speaking to those who have no Jewish background of the Scriptures or of Yahweh, and his understanding of heaven and hell comes out here. Notice that Paul doesn't talk about the place. He calls people to think about the righteous judgment of God. That's what he wants to impress in their mind. There is a judgment coming. How do you have a right judgment made about you? Well, you need to repent. You're stuck in idolatry. Turn to the one true God and you will have the right judgment made about you. And soon after that, his time on Mars Hill at the Areopagus is over and he leaves. Now from that, two things, I think, for our own efforts in being a Jesus-shaped community that takes Jesus into our community, we can learn today. The first thing we see is the importance of cultural stories and secondly, the importance of gospel thread. So a cultural story and a gospel thread. And we'll finish on this. A cultural story is, um, sorry, a myth actually today is that we, we've outgrown stories as adults. Kids love stories and fables and fairy tales and, and sometimes we think, well, well, I've outgrown stories. I'm a grown up. I, um, I don't need stories. But the evidence says otherwise. For example, Netflix took in 20.15 billion US dollars last year, released five times as much more content as Hollywood. Uh, so clearly adults, you love stories if you're pumping that much into Netflix. Because, you know, God has wired us for stories. We are a story-built people. This is why the Bible is presented as a grand story of, of creation and fall, redemption, restoration, not a dictionary, not a systematic theology book. The Bible is not a dictionary to look up uh, different things in. We can find true facts in there, of course, but it's actually the story of God and what he's doing in the world. And moreover, do you know, God himself uses illustrations and stories to emphasize what we should emphasize our life and how we live. For example, in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. And God speaks to Cain. And he says, watch out, sin is crouching at your door. You must subdue it, else it will overtake you. Now, God could have just said, sin's bad, don't do it. But he brings Cain to this illustration, this story of, of almost like a lion or a panther pouncing and saying, sin is like that right behind your life, any moment, ready to crouch and pounce upon you. Can you not see 
the viciousness, the ferocity of sin, the fangs, the sharpness. Watch out, Cain. It is really, they're ready to get you. And so God himself uses an illustration to bring Cain's life into God's narrative. Even though a gospel comes from an old Middle English word meaning good spell, which means good and then spell was another, another idea of story because in old English times, a good spell was a good story. And stories will cast a spell. They capture your imagination. That's the concept, not, not magic or anything. And the gospel of Jesus is the story that all other stories only ever point to. It's the story that is historically true, not made up. And Paul knows that, and he knows how to weave that story into the culture narrative that's at play in Athens. And so a cultural narrative is just a story that people in society believe and hold to that shapes how they view the past, the present, the future, and gives them a way to understand life. For example, a cultural narrative a few centuries, not centuries ago, a few years ago, um, would say women should not work, they should stay at home. That was a dominant cultural narrative of uh, the West. But today, that isn't nearly as strong a narrative, is it? We have another one that we believe and hold on to and follow. Not all cultural narratives are good or bad, Christianity is not a return to some bygone era, wishing for things the way they were. But you see, often we look upon those stories to give us life, meaning, purpose, hope. We have an idea of utopia. We, we, we see it as going to be this, so then we shape a story around how we're going to achieve that. Perfect family, good job, expressing myself however I want sexually, whatever it is in our society, that's what we shape our story around. Often you reject the previous generation's story or narrative because it, it's hinder, it hindering, it's a hindrance to you. And so stories can be both positive and negative. And the question for the Christian is, how into those stories do I bring the gospel to show Jesus is the better? He's the answer. And so part of that is asking questions like, what parts of the culture agree with the gospel? Paul realized that in Athens. What parts disagree? Paul also realized that. Hey, there's a big disagreement here. You're reducing God to little when he's really big. Let me tell you about this big God. And then how does Jesus finish the story? And the way we can do that is with a gospel thread. Gospel thread, I'm, I'm calling it, is just simply a part of the gospel that connects with showing someone, showing how the rule of Jesus needs to be over them. And the right gospel thread plays a really important part in giving people the space to think about the claims of Jesus. Back to my friend John. In that moment, I told him God made everything, yet God is actually a real, tangible legitimate belief to hold on to. In that moment, he thought, maybe if God is real, when I look around and see, maybe I should give some thought to that. So I was trying to give him a space to think through the claims of who this God of creation is. For example, this is very relevant to me. My kids love Frozen 2 at the moment. Anyone seen Frozen 2? You can put adults going, ah, thank you, brilliant. Um, It's a brilliant movie. I really enjoyed it. It was better than Frozen 1. And the songs, though, it's Disney, so the songs get stuck in your head. Always, they drive me bonkers. And we're in the car and there's this one song where, where this character called Christoph sings about a girl called Anna and he wants to propose and a whole lot of stuff's happened in the movie and he's kind of a bit sketchy. Maybe she's going to leave me. I'm not really sure. And he goes in the woods and he sings this song called Lost in the Woods because he feels like he's lost without her. He's frustrated. He can't find her. Literally, she's gone off to find her big sister. He's trying to find her and propose. And, and you as the viewer are like, he just wants to propose. Come back, Anna. He, he, he just loves you so much. You're drawn in the story. 
And then it says this in the song. It says, and this is what struck me in my head, and you probably have instances too when you watch things or hear things. He says, I'm lost in the woods. North is south, right is left. Who am I if I'm not your guy? Where am I if we're not together forever? He's devastated. You can laugh. It's okay, Damien. He's devastated. His whole life is falling apart because he's, he's crashing around because this girl whom he hangs all his hopes on and identity is just running away, not around. You can see in that moment how powerful love is, can you not? And I remember thinking this, and me and Tasha were talking about it in the car a few weeks ago. Um, Tasha, Charlotte was, we heard the song and Charlotte said something and Tasha said this to Charlotte. She said, hey Charlotte, um, he's so upset, isn't he? Because his hope is in Anna. You know, but we have a hope in Jesus. And we don't have to be unsure or feel like life doesn't make sense because in Jesus we're found and we don't have to worry about him running off because he came to find us. And that means we can be happy, we can be secure in him, not in what a boy might say about us or in wanting to get someone to like you. And, and so in that song, you see, we can affirm the culture's view that love is something amazing and wonderful. But we're not going to go as so far as to say the love between a man and a woman or any person is your whole source of identity and purpose and you must have that to live, do you see? But you see, someone could say to that, well, um, Luke, there's nothing wrong with love like that. I've had a love like that and it turned out really well and so did it in the movie for Christoph and Anna. So, ha, huh, what do you have to say to that? And into that, Christian says, yes and no. Look, uh, the ultimate love, though, is not in you finding a partner. But in love, finding you while you were lost in the woods. And then we're loved by more than a romantic love. We're loved enough for the Son of God himself to become unlovable, to die and rise for you. And then when you embrace his costly love, the one love that counts in all of life, suddenly you have what you were looking for in that person but not in a created person, in the uncreated God. Now, would you not want a love like that? Would you not want to give your life to a love like that? Because that love gave himself for you. And then that love shapes all your other relationships. You can love not to feel love, but because you are full of his love. And so what I'm doing is I'm affirming the culture's narrative on love and but redirecting them to God at the same time and rejecting some of the idolatrous Views. Do you see that? I'm sure it's different for you. I'm sure you're not thinking about Frozen 2 as much as I am, but you all have your own areas. This is why the parts are so different. You would never have known that had I told you that. Now you're going to go watch Frozen 2, I'm sure. It's a good movie. So here's where we're going to land this very big plane today. We'll finish with this. So to take Jesus into our communities means a collective energy of our church as the engine room for mission will be spent in prayer for doors to open, for us to be clear in how we talk about Jesus. As a church, our heart for mission is to support you as you do the groundwork in people's lives because you're the mission arm of the church. However, we know that as a group, we can reach people an individual can't. And so just as we have the community calendar last week that I showed you, this week there's a mission calendar as well for you to pick up, hold on to, put on your fridge, and our aim in this is to have a few types of events throughout the year to create a space where all the groundwork you're doing in your relationships, you can say to someone, hey, my friend John, hey, John, um, do you want to come to this thing my church is doing? It's in November and, and it's going to be this. 
and uh, it might be good for you to meet some other Christian people and maybe hear a bit more about Jesus too in a, in a, in a space that's non-threatening, non-confrontational to help those conversations you're already having with your non-Christian friends. So we value that as a community too. And we want to put energy as an engine room into helping you do that, to pray for you and then to go and, that you will go and speak about Jesus too. And, and because prayer matters, you've all got a handout. And I'm not, uh, I'm not, didn't have a sermon outline or anything, but this is a little table um, the network put together a few years back. And I'd love you to take the time to fill it out. I have mine here and I don't have uh, a, an answer for every box, but um, for most of them I do. And I'd love you to write down those who don't yet know Jesus and be intentional about praying for them and, as it says, a practical way you can wisely make the most of opportunities to speak about Jesus. And then so why not take that to your community group this week and share it with those around you and say, hey, this week, um, can you pray for my friend, um, you know, John, that I have more chances to talk about Jesus with him or those at school or in the cafe or your delivery guy that comes to your house to drop the post off? Or after the service today, look for someone. Hey, what did you write in yours? How can I pray for you this week? Over coffee, why not talk through that today? And finally, may you know that at a very profound level, you actually can't do any of what I've just said. Good news, you can't do it. Paul, he'd agree with me as well, that he had no hope in doing this as well. In praying, in speaking the gospel into people's lives clearly and perfectly, But here's the thing, there was one who does and who did do it perfectly, who prayed totally dependent upon God. At his darkest hour, the night before he was betrayed and crucified, desperate that God would have another way, but also totally subjecting his life to the perfect will of the Father. There was one who was always clear, who knew every single heart perfectly and always what to say. And when you read about this person's life, you think, how did you know what to say? Because he's the son of God himself who knows all the hearts and longings of his listeners. And so you can't do this, and we can't do it as a church. But there is one who can. And it's through faith in him that we start to live that way too. So why don't put your faith in that Jesus today? Let's pray, and then the band will come up and lead us through our next song. Our great Father, you are the missional God who has been seeking a people for yourself. You've made us in your image. You've redeemed us so that we can then go and take Jesus to others. And Father, we realize and recognize that unless you are in that, we're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We desire to be a community that can tell others about Jesus, that be a space where people can come and hear the claims of Jesus, think about them for themselves, and respond with repentance and faith, that they, our friends and family, would have a right judgment made about them. And one day you return, and you open up everyone's life before you, and that we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant, only because of Jesus. Father God, give us clarity on how to speak the gospel, and may the gospel too become a fountain of, of, of living water, in ourselves, overflowing, that we can share with others this week. So, great God, we are dependent upon you. In your name we pray. Amen.